Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 135. The Confused State of Rulebooks. Recorded at Metatopia 2016. Presented by Joshua Yearsley, John Adamus, and Jessica Hammer. Apologies for the sound quality issues with this episode. Choices. Yeah. <laughs> that chair's a little heavier than I thought. That's not good. That's gonna hurt the chest tomorrow. I wrote notes well. 30 seconds ago, so that's it. I that's all I got. Yeah. Yeah. I gave an hour-long lecture on Wednesday to 40 yeah. people yeah. with no prep and no notes. So, <laughs> so like, let's do this do thing. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Woo. More audience. Oh, uh, passing, passing through. Bye. Five passing through people. Hi, everybody. Hello. Welcome to your 10 o'clock panel of... Uh, how do I put this polite? Well, it's being recorded, right? I yeah. can't really just drop the What the... Of course you can drop the F- What is... 
Melon farming wrong yeah. in rule books. All right, I'm just going to be the first one to say fuck. Oh, thank fuck. Oh, thank fuck. <laughs> it wasn't me this time, you guys. Just the fuck. Take one for the team. Fuck cascade begins. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there is swearing in this establishment. <laughs> All right, so we should first perhaps do introductions. Yeah, wise. Uh, John Adamus. I'm the writer next door. Uh, I edit things. I edit a lot of things, and I... Uh, absolutely delight in working with new people, making new things, and making them awesome. Hi. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Jessica Hammer. I'm a professor of game design at Carnegie Mellon University, and um, I read a lot of research papers about stuff that is relevant to role-playing games, and I also make role-playing games. Cool. Uh, I'm Joshua Yearsley. Um, I'm also an editor. Um, I love, love, love working on board games and role-playing games because they're just so different and it just blows my mind how different their rulebooks can be all the time. Um, I've been editing for about four years, uh, done stuff for Asmodee, Evil Hat, so do, do stuff for people big and small, so that's me. The two editors and an academic. Oh god, we're gonna either be boring or amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, talk about the Oxford con just 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 starting off. Right, starting yeah. off. Okay, <laughs> you guys. I'm out of that one. Yeah, no, no. Okay, yeah, yeah sorry. D derail, bring it back onto the tracks here. <laughs> See, I, yeah. I, I think it's probably easier to explain what the hell this, this panel's about. Yeah. And that is basically that if you go to anything that Jim is selling out here or you go anywhere on drive through RPG. There is no single uniform template for the way things look, the way things are expressed. Even though we're all dealing with games where you play pretend to do a thing, the, the myriad ways that that gets accomplished allows us to really have favorites and not favorites and uh, finger waggy bits. When we look at this stuff and go, why? Why do we elect to do it this way? And while there is clearly like an evolution of these things, like we're no longer writing things like it's 1972. Stone tablets and everything. Yeah, you know, yeah. linear A. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're moving past that. We're moving into more fluid text. We're moving into more. And this isn't just a matter of subject matter. This is also physical, how it looks on the page, right? It used to be very columnar. It used to be very like, here are my things. And occasionally we're going to stick art and that art better have boobs and color in it. Um, and then later it's migrated into sort of a, an, a more topic centric concept where you're looking at things like, here's the part where we talk about shooting things, and here's the part where we talk about stats. And, and it became more uh, open-ended because the text became less, let me tell you how big my, um, I believe the play term is e-penis, <laughs> the sort of digital expression of just how much you want to hear myself talk. Like, here's my great volume, by the way, there's a game in here. And it became more of an instructional text where we, where we no longer move from page one to page 372. We, we reference it, kind of crack it open. Oh, I need to find the part about combat. I need to find the part about treasure charts. I need to find the part about hibbity hoo blah. And yeah, you're, you're never moving linearly. And, and let's, let's be straightforward and say, like, this is a young, it's still a young, oh, young, young yeah. thing we're working with here, you know? Tabletop games in the like mainstream by you know any way you can define it as an as, as like an art form you know maybe 30, 40 years old 40, you know 40, sure. 40 years old you know uh, other art forms double ten times you know just yeah. it, it goes all the way down the line so we're we're still uh, uh, compared to all those other things we still are really working on stone tablets so and, and right and I think one of the challenges that we face is that um, you know 
if we do want to be speaking to people who are in the mainstream, who may not already be familiar with role-playing games, actually conceiving of role-playing game books as instructional text and as teaching text is critically important because somebody's first exposure to your game may come without a lot of the cultural assumptions, the assumptions about play, the knowledge of what play looks like that comes with it already sort of pre-programmed in people who are already part of the role-playing community. And that's something where I actually think we're not doing a good enough job. We are not making our text accessible to people who don't already know how to play. And that's one of the challenges that we have in increasing the audience for tabletop role-playing games. Because even in those 30, 40 years, mm. you've developed a language and yeah. shared assumptions and a legacy that we want to speak to, to show that we know, we understand what's already been done, that we're talking to people who are part of the community, that as designers, we are part of this legacy and tradition. And at the same time, there's this tension with how do we write a text that is accessible to someone who doesn't already know how to role play, who may be connecting to the material through, for example, the topic. I'm a horror fan. I, I watch horror movies. I read horror novels. I play horror role playing games. That's like a brick wall for most people. I want to tear down that wall. Mr. Gorbachev. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all of, all all rule books are kind of like informed by their communities, right? Yep. You know, we have role playing games, and then you know, trad role playing games, indie role playing games. You have war game community, Eurogame game community. Like, uh, there, I was, uh, I, I was playing a war game that shall remain unnamed um, a month ago, and I was, you know, really, really having trouble with its rule book. I was like. You know, I can't find rules. Everything seems like out of order, and like I just don't understand what's going on. And I went on Board Game Geek, um, and I found this thread about like some people grousing about the rules. And the designer of the game came on and said, "Don't read the rule book." Oh said, "Put the board on the table." Start pushing cardboard around, and when you don't understand something, then try and figure out the thing in oh, the rule book. Oh and and then and then it's like and then if you still have problems, there's a whole example of play like right in the beginning, so that will tell you everything you need to know. And I just I felt like I was starting to have an aneurysm because I was like, why do you have a rule book if you don't want people to read the book? Oh, okay, okay, but okay. So here's a place where we're gonna have a productive disagreement. Look, mm -hmm. productive disagreement. Excellent. So, yeah. so um. A lot of the, the you know, I, so I, I said I read research that's relevant to role play games, so I apologize. You're going to hear me say a lot of sentences that start with, research suggests. Empirically. Right? Okay. Yeah. Empirically. So the, Adverbs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the research suggests that actually um, we, when we do learn something, mm -hmm. we learn something in a context. So it's actually quite hard to learn rules in an abstract way without what we call an anchor. So if I'm learning how to play a board game, it's much easier for me to say, okay, I've taken out the board, I'm putting the pieces on the board, I have a goal in mind for what I'm trying to achieve, now let me look at the rules for how I do that. And we can see that in video game tutorials, right, where they're providing what we call just-in-time scaffolding and support. So, uh, you know, uh, they walk you through, they're introducing one idea at a time, you know, first we're going to teach you how to walk your character around, now we're going to teach you how to crouch, now we're going to teach you how to jump, now we're going to teach you how to, you know, shoot your weapon, right? Whatever it is. Um, so this idea to me does not seem laughable. Mm -hmm. I am like, this designer understands actually better than a lot of role-playing game designers what should be done, but the execution is that execution mm -hmm. is unspeakably bad. And yeah, and you need to, I, I absolutely agree. And in those cases, you need- We disagree. You're supposed we, to disagree. We do. We do disagree. Okay, we disagree. We're, we're gonna. We're, 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 we're gonna bring. We're gonna bring it back around. We're okay. gonna. We're, we're gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna. You know. I. 
I'd like Wait. to be practical guy now. Okay, oh. go practical guy. The, the context and the anchor that we develop, because I can now carry some academic terms because I went to school once. Um, <laughs> the context and anchor we develop, we, we become so reliant in our, in our game text when we create that two to eight paragraph, one column. This is what a role playing game is, you guys. And that, that, that's our rough, crude, hasty attempts to describe when we say D6, we mean the six sided die. And we, we, we have a, a priest, is it a presuppose? Uh, I, yeah. I can't think of the noun. It's late, I'm tired. We suppose that that information is enough to instill a context in the reader. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, because it instills a context in us. But, we, but we have bias. We, we come to this already knowing this shit. That's right. And that one column of this is a role playing game, here's a quick glossary. Makes here's, us feel nice. It makes us feel yeah. nice. Oh, we've done something. We've, we've told you, the new people, what you need to know. No, we haven't. We have fucking failed you in that regard because we require you to go into the text that we're supposed to be establishing a context for in order to build context. Yep. So that is why when I look at a game book for the first time, the first thing I do is read it through twice. And editorially, that allows me to look for more red flags in terms of like, well, you guys are making a game. I didn't get to use this in my last panel. I get to use it now. If you tell me that your game is about uh, you play cops and robbers where you're the robbers and you're always trying to get away like Fast and Furious, but then you have 45 pages of mechanics and story and supplemental material that talks about how two drivers can fall in love and you forget about the part about the car chase, you're not making a game about a car chase. Right. You are eliminating that context despite it being in your premise because you've decided it's more interesting to go this way. I don't mean to gesture at you, but go this uh, way with mechanic. <laughs> I'm being I like respectful mechanics. of space. Uh, I like but, um, I can have them. Cool. It's the, it's the idea that if you say you've got a thing in your game, then have there be a thing in the game. And if you go back to 90, because I, I, I can like get crunchy on this. If you go back to 1992 and you see the first appearances of fiction as, a, as an opening to a book, hmm. like um, uh, a particular series of books that portrayed an earth but with a lack of light, or um, it had to do with uh, <laughs> canine pack animals that were <laughs> devoid of color, you had a, see what I'm doing there? You, you had a situation where you had 20 to 30 pages of, of like, we're going to get into character and chances are it's raining and someone's wearing leather pants. And that gave you an evocative vibe. That gave you a, 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 what's called a visual character tone. I went to film school. A visual character tone. However, that doesn't supply me the atmosphere you want to provide. It just tells me that it's raining a lot in this city and we're all listening to some more emo. Yeah. Like, my hair is dark and it's brood time. But it doesn't tell me like what you want me to feel when I play your game. So establishing that context, not just about anchoring through your physical props. Like, you need dice. You need pencils. Sit the hell down and print this sheet out at Kinko's. You also need to establish an emotional core. I want you to feel X way when I play your game. And if you can't tell me what that X is, I'm going to throw your draft back at you editorially until you can tell me. Yeah, and I mean, that, that brings up an, an interesting point of uh, different reasons why people read, especially role playing game rule books. Because yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I know plenty of people who will be like, this looks really interesting. I will never play this. Yeah. But I just want to pick it up for the experience of reading it. Well, and so that throws like another wrench into yeah. the well, into the works, pressure. right? Like, like everybody else has this. I want to be cool like them too. Or oh. do do you do you really think it's pure? I mean, like I, some degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think like because you. So I'm on Twitter. Maybe all the for time. some people, right? Well, I, I can speak for myself. Exactly. Right. And I see a lot of people tweeting. I just backed this Kickstarter. I just backed this Kickstarter. This Kickstarter looks awesome. Game X, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. And then I sit there and I look at it and I'm like, I 
I have this much money with which I could back this Kickstarter. And if my friends start talking about this thing, I want to make sure I'm in the know. Because mm. there's a sense of exclusivity, not just because they're going to get first, but in general I want to be informed because I can use that information. Before I even start thinking about whether or not this information is something I can use mechanically or narratively for myself, I want to, be, I want to belong to the tribe. Because my context as a role player is inherent in collective structures. We are a group of people. It is very, very few games have an entirely solo solitaire effect, right? Like you need a GM, you need multiple players, and you've got to come together. At least role playing game. As a role playing yeah. game. Yeah. Does. So you need to be able to enjoy. You need to be able to join that tribe. You need to be able to break that barrier of entry, which means I've got to back this Kickstarter. I have a bookcase of games that I backed at a low level, just enough to get either physical content or digital content, and put it to the side. Now, later, I will possibly, maybe, if somebody gives me something to edit, reference one of those books. Like, oh yeah, I think if you look at the rules in blah, blah, blah game, you might look at this, or I might go to my friends and go, hey, I, I have a copy of so-and-so, do you want to play it? But as a whole, I really honestly think a great deal of that, circula that, cir that circulation issue of, well, what do you mean you didn't back that game? It's awesome, man, you're missing out drives an awful lot of people rather than look at a game to see do I really want a game about this is it really my thing would my friends do this is this something I'm comfortable playing or do I just have to own this so that I feel like I'm a member so I guess but I'm not convinced that that's a bad thing so I'm not sure I think honestly. that uh, you know so I buy books because people I know have read them and said that they're awesome and right. they seem really cool right uh, that, that creating shared experiences is really powerful. I think the place that, that maybe this starts to become a problem is we have different audiences for the same role-playing book, right? So for the same book, one text, is supposed to meet the needs of the person who is learning the game for the first time, the expert player who needs to reference a rule during play, the person who just wants to read the book so they can talk about it with their community, the person who wants to add the book to their collection and look at it and enjoy it as an aesthetic experience, mm -hmm. the person who's doing it as some kind of community right. mm -hmm. symbol, right, of showing yeah. I'm part of And we have one artifact to make all those people happy. Yeah, and I mean, now, like, you know, the, the, the game that comes to mind for me is New, Numenera, where they decided, like, okay, we're going to really split out this artifact into different things, you know, for our, for the people who are like, okay, I'm interested in learning how to, like, make a character in the basics of those, we're gonna give you, like, a 40-page, like, little player's guide thing that you can buy lots of yep. and hand out to your players and things right. like that. We're gonna have the full core book thing where you have setting stuff. Um, what do you think of, of things like that where, like, publishers are really starting to, like, piece out all of these things in different directions rather than, like, putting them into one, yeah. I am, a, I am usually in favor, mm -hmm. but I think that there are two pieces to doing that well. So okay. one is being willing to explode your product, mm -hmm. and the other is having a really good understanding of your user. Yeah. So when I look at stuff that's aimed at new players, it is almost always focused on the wrong things. Mm -hmm. So okay. I actually uh, supervised a student research team for a semester, and their brief was create an app that helps novice role players play Pathfinder for the first time. Hmm. They spent an entire semester doing this thing and most of it was not code, right? They, they built an infrastructure really quickly, they were, whatever. The, the, the technical part turned out to be really simple. What was really difficult was articulating and understanding what is hard for novice role players because again, as experts, we, it is hard for us to look back and see what's difficult. What they isolated 
was that novice role players had a really hard time understanding how to construct a sentence that was meaningful in the world. They literally did not know how to speak what they were allowed to say. And so this app, instead of saying, here, we're going to help you learn the rules, we're going to help you learn what dice to roll, it was focused on, we're going to teach you different kinds of sentences that you can say and expect to have an impact, and for you to know that these kinds of sentences have rules attached to them, which you can then go reference, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you take a thing that you might try to do, what would that thing even be, and then how do I know what rule to look at? That turned out to be a problem that was so hard that it took a team of five people full time, four months mm. to make a dent in it. And it turned out that when they put in the effort and they put in the time, they created this experience that was about half an hour and they did a ton of play testing with novice Pathfinder players. And they compared what they were doing to standard ways of onboarding new players. And they found that with an experienced GM and four to six new players, their app could get people up to speed with rules handling and participating in the game in between half an hour and 45 minutes compared to between two to three hours to achieve even basic competence. New players, they don't want to fuck around mm. for three hours before being able to participate in your game. And we need to find ways when we're doing this exploding out to make sure that we are putting, if, if, if you want your game to sell to new audiences, not to the same people who are already right. buying your game, then the effort has to go to the stuff that makes it accessible to them because the people who want your game because all their friends are talking about it, they're going to buy it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we have this like huge tra oral tradition in the games community. Yeah. And it has like, it's great for some reasons, but it also like, it really gives us tunnel vision, right? You know, it really makes us see, you know, we, we have a rules text and the starting point that we're coming from is we are making these, we're not making these for the new players, we're making these for the players who already know how to do the thing and they're going to then teach the thing to other people. Like that's kind of the model right. that, that a lot of these rule books are coming Which from. would actually be a fine model if we owned that, right? So mm -hmm. if we actually said, here, GM, here, here's, here are ways to find people who've never played before, who are already in your social circles, who would be able to connect to this game. And I think that's where this gets back to what John was saying about how do you create a core emotional experience because that's something that people can connect to. And I think this is where I disagree with the idea of exploding it out. Mm. Oh, good, okay. Here's why. Because if you're trying to deliver a core experience, whatever that experience might be, and you're trying to reach particularly new people, one of the first barriers to overcome before you even look inside the book is what do I need to purchase, what do I need to obtain, and how readily accessible is that for the people I'm trying to reach? People who are accustomed to paying 30, 40, 50, 60, upwards of books, know that this is part of the culture. This is part of the system we buy into by saying, I'm a gamer, I buy product. If I'm trying to reach a new person, one of the questions I will invariably get is, how do I justify this cost? This Kickstarter means I have to spend $85 plus shipping before I see the book that I can turn around and tell my friends, you guys, I got this book, I think you should too. That, uh, that financial commitment is no longer simple at a large scale. It's just not for people. Like I, I whether you consider that for personal reasons, professional reasons, or there's just a shipping's a bitch or whatever, it's not simple anymore to say, well, we have installments. We have, you know, you buy this module, this module, and this module, and if they're only 15 bucks a piece. Yeah, that's $45. Why can't you give me that kind? I don't want to have to buy, buy, buy. If you run out of stock on item two, what am I supposed to do? Just tell you to wait? 
but I need all three of these pieces. So why can't you give me everything I need right here? Because if you're really intent on delivering that experience, you can get it all together. You can package that pill and hand it out. See, I don't see, necessarily see the different components as like every player is going to need all yeah, of those things. Exactly. Like I, I see part of the, the potential experience as like, if you're an experienced role-playing gamer, like you probably don't need like this part right here. It might actually, I don't know all the economics, but it might actually be saving you money in the, in the long run if you already know the things. Whereas if you break things out in a way that can create a really low price point for people who right. are like, I just want to just dip my toe in. I'm willing to buy a $15, $20 little thing to like look at right. and be like, is this for me? Right. You know, maybe there's something there. Right. To... And with a really low barrier, right? So you might think about like a lot of times it's like, oh, so you buy the thing and then the dice are extra and the character yeah. sheets you print out. But so you could imagine that when you're exploding it out, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, for 10 bucks, you can get six printed you know six laminated character sheets the dice that you need an introductory scenario yeah and i mean some publishers are starting to do this yeah. exact thing like fantasy flight with the star wars rpg yeah. they're like we have created beginner box here's some pre-printed you yep. know sheets map That's little right. adventure you know things like that so I, like... I can cite fantasy flight as the thing that really bothered me about this idea mm -hmm. because i listened to the campaign podcast and i'm like i can do this my friends will we can have fun with this we, we're big star wars nerds let's do it Okay, let me hop on Amazon, because that's where primarily I can get a lot of content. I have Amazon Prime. I can get this shit by the weekend. Let's do it. Yeah. And I'm like, it's a book. All right, one book's cool. Wait, there's dice. Okay, wait, there's sheets. Wait, I got to get adventures. Yeah. And yes, I'm buying into the, the created atmosphere, but at the same time, I'm thinking about my credit card bill. And I'm thinking about like, well, I don't know. I mean, yes, my players are all experienced at home, and we've been experienced since who knows how long. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be able to take this game to a con where I get, I want people who hadn't, aren't my four friends. So I need to be able to tell them, well, you're new. And personally, I'm not comfortable saying, well, you're new, so you get this item. You're experienced, so you get that item. I want to be able to say- But is there anything wrong with that? It's no, like, there's nothing we, wrong with it. Yeah. It's just, I personally disagree with it. Sure, I, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful business model because you produce content and you, you make, it, that's awesome. It's just for me, mm -hmm. when I sit down and think about it, I want to be able to say, this is everything you need. This is the experience I want you to have. It is complete. You can do with it as you like, and you can tailor it as, you, as I know invariably you will. But this is everything you need. I'm not going to come back at you and go, oh, by the way, if you really wanted to do this, give me more. Because I find that personally to be predatory in a way that is unintentional. So I think that depends on who you are. Absolutely. So. Um there's now every time I say this term, the word research, I'm getting really like, am I really talking about more research? But I'm going to talk about more research. So there's um, uh, uh, a sort of um, oh, now I'm blanking on the name of the law, but there, there's a bunch of research that has been done on different kinds of uh, sort of creative practices and online practices, and that's uh, what we like to call the 99-1 rule. The 99-1 rule says 90% of people will engage with your stuff passively. Right? If it's online, they will lurk. If it requires creative engagement, they will watch. 9% of people will be led. And 1% of people will be leaders. You are the 1%. We are all the 1%. So to say, well, you'll, Thank you. yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> true though, to be in this room, we are the 1%. We are the people who are willing to generate creative content in our free time and think that's fun, right? That is not everybody. And if we want to sell to more than the 1% of the population, we need to think about their needs and not our needs. So for a lot of people, they will pay money 
to not have to creatively contribute, okay? So there are people for whom, here's a beginner box, it's everything you need to play with your friends once, it costs you $10, and if you like it, you can subscribe and get a new adventure once a month for $10 a month for as long as you wanna keep playing, and this adventure will go to our subscribers first, and then a month later, everybody else can get access to it and we'll sell it to the whole world, right? There are people for, for who are like, and you can imagine that that would make you hundreds of dollars over time because people are signed up to continue to receive content from you. And for these players, it is not exploitative. It is meeting a need. And that need is, how do I play without having to make this game for myself? Right. Right? How can I, a person who is maybe in the 9%, play and engage with your content without having to find someone who wants to be a creative leader? How can I play if I'm in the 9%? How do I play with my friends who are the vast majority of people who just want to sit back here? What does role-playing game engagement look like when some people are really hesitant and really afraid to participate? Those numbers can be shifted with good design. So if you're familiar with Scott Osterweil's work, he ran uh, an alternate reality game in combination with the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, DC. And one of the things he was interested in is could he shift the 99-1 rule? And he did. So he made a lot of, I, I don't wanna get, you, you can read about it, the, the thing online, there are a number of articles, he's written some good design pieces about it, but he was able to get it to like 63-29-11, right? You know, like he was able to really shift the numbers of people who are willing to participate in that middle category, right, of I am willing to participate if someone else takes the lead, and the people who are willing to take a lead on creative contribution. So we can approach this problem in two, number, two ways if we want to open up new markets. Number one, we can address the 90% and the 9% and think about their needs and create things that are tailored to them that don't address the needs of the 1%. Sure right and have those as parallel tracks for being engaged in role-playing games or we can try to shift those percentages and shift those numbers in our designs but i think that if we don't do either of those things we are limited to ever making our games accessible to a tiny tiny fragment of the population that could value and appreciate what yeah, we so, do. Yeah, so how do you, like, given this idea, given this, like, ideal, um, you know, how, 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 do you, how do you look at a, a rule book and how do you help create that designed onboarding experience well, Is this a to... practical question? Because I'm so ready for a practical question. Is that a practical uh, question? Do I, know, a question? I know I'm going to grab that guy because he would yeah. like to raise his okay. hand. The practical issue is this. You're gonna look at sentences. We're gonna talk granularly, and I'm gonna try and make this not dull for you. And I will use metaphor and analogy. Um, you're gonna we're gonna look at sentence structure. Two elements in sentence structure determine how accessible someone perceives your text. Sentence length, in terms of the number of words between capital letter and period, right? As well as the number and pieces of punctuation that break up sentence structure. How many commas? How many semicolons? Really that many semicolons? Are you for fuck's sake serious? <laughs> you want to do how many M dashes? What does that look like? It might be grammatically correct and it might prevent the blue and green or red or orange or puce or plaid squiggle in whatever your word processor is, but does it fundamentally tell the reader and paint a picture in their head of what you want them to do in a way that doesn't make that sound like you're asking them to turn bread into chickens? Sentence structure is, uh, aside from my jam, 
the absolute best way to engage with someone because how you relay that information demonstrates you being in the 1%, but tells the reader, whether they're in the nine or the 90, because I'm just gonna carry this Yeah, no, it's forward. cool, let's, let's, let's do it. It tells them, hey, this is how we're gonna communicate. So for instance, it could be as simple as short, simple sentence being direct. I don't need two paragraphs describing how to shuffle cards because I can use the verb shuffle. Right, you don't need me to break down the kinesthetics of knuckle bending and card deterrent. No, you need me to say, shuffle the cards. Which you said you actually saw. I, in, ha I have seen yeah. manuscripts and worked on manuscripts where Wait, shuffling, you're not serious. Okay. Where shuffling right. was broken down into a multi-paragraph description of grasping cards, rotating, and it became about, it became a masturbatory practice on behalf, by the writer saying, look how well I can detail this thing, you guys. As opposed to, this is what I want you to do. Right. And keeping it focused to, this is what I want you to do. A sentence at a time, because sentence is stacked, right? It's not just one sentence per blank page, giant piece of art, next page. Although that can be amusing visually. It's the idea that our sentences work together, collaborating to better create a context and an idea in our heads. So each sentence doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting. It's like a stream of ants, right? Or, in my personal favorite, it's like dip, like food dip. You don't need every scoop to have every flavor okay. because you're going to eat the whole goddamn thing with all your fucking Fritos. So you can dig in and get different flavors as you go. So the sentences collaborate together. I'm borrowing this analogy. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, the sentences work together to convey the idea you're not, therefore not relying on any sentence. It's not like the first sentence in the paragraph has to do all the work. Yep. And it's not like that's called front loading. And it's not like the back, the last sentence called back loading has to do all the heavy work too. Those are valid strategies when we're making fiction or when we're talking in academics, but if we're simply instructing you every sentence, regardless of location, has what's called equal value. Because when you look at something like an instruction manual for something that's not a game, like say Ikea furniture, every sentence in the thing that says take the Allen wrench, put the Allen wrench into the screw, turn, join board one with board two at a right, every sentence is consistent and packaged, even though it comes in a paragraph. That's how you reach the people who might feel passive because the visual, the iconography, the detail work, the headers, the art, the layout, reach those passive people. Mm -hmm. You hit the middle people who want to engage, but in a kind of at a distance by creating packets of information, we call this paragraphs for humans, packets of information that make us feel like this isn't so fucking daunting. Right. And for the 1% who are like, I am so down to roll some dice, you just let the whole thing speak for itself. Yeah. I have a sickeningly good segue, but we should really go to the questions. Yes, yes. That yeah. gentleman was waiting so patiently. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, small question. What was that even researcher, Scott? Osterweil. O-S-T-E-R-W-E-I-L. Uh, he does a lot of really cool stuff. So while you're in there looking up information about this game, you can also look at some of the other cool things he's done over the years. Awesome. So. Thanks. Yeah, you got it. What was your sixth segue, dude? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this this really ties right back into these traditions of communities thing, right? Like, uh, depending on, like, the publisher or the designer you're talking to, you can get so many different answers about what the right way to talk to the reader is. Like, I've, I've talked to publishers who are just, like, completely adamant about never referring to the person reading the book as you. Like, just never do it according to them. Whereas some, someone else will be like, use you as much as possible. There are different traditions in role-playing games and in board games and in war games 
um, because they came out of kind of different processes of game design. You know, uh, traditional role-playing games came out of miniatures um, design. War games were, you know, lots of old white dudes writing technical manuals, and, you know, maybe that's how... Uh, it came out of the military. Yeah, right? it came Going out of the military, essentially, right. yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and maybe the... Uh, these these ways that we write rule books, you know, referring to the player does the thing, you know, we don't know where all of these traditions came from. You know, when someone tells you like, oh, you best refer to the players as players rather than you, really start to interrogate like, why should I do that? Like, start asking questions rather than just like following, uh, following that kind of advice. Think about kind of the weird ways that traditions influence with best practice, uh, intermix with best practices. Now that said though, you will reach a point where eventually it's, I, I, don't, I don't know why we do that. That's just how we do it. Yeah. And that's where you come back in and go, well, this is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. So yep. I can give you one more practical thing that talks about this. It's called psychic distance. And that is the perceived distance between the reader and the action you want the reader to take. It basically, uh, if you think about the television camera, is how zoomed in we are to the thing. So think about something like a close-up shot. We are way tight on the specific thing because that's where you want my focus. We are way zoomed in on this guy's face because we want to see his facial response. We are way zoomed in on the rule, shuffle the cards, then deal five to each player because it's clear and direct. But when we pull back out, think Lord of the Rings tracking shot, we are putting such a distance between the reader, the project, and the idea that it's all of a sudden it's, well, you're going to deal five cards. And the first, it becomes the further back you go, the longer your paragraph seems to stretch and the less like room you have to breathe when you read it. So you start sounding like an auctioneer on speed where you're just sort of cranking through like you've got to deal five cards. And each everybody passes the chip and the large blind goes and the small blind goes. Then everybody bids and then the bid call system. And you want to collapse that distance. You want to make sure everybody knows that per sentence, per action, per key verb. A key verb is the verb that like is the thing you want to talk about. The unkey verb is the verbs that support it. Uh, the key verb is the thing you want to look at. Shuffle, draw, right. roll, yeah. right. write. That's why right. imperative structure is so important Absolutely. so much of the time. Right. You know, imperative structure is where you have a, I and mean, it's the command, it's the shuffle, you know, Let's shuffle this. this, do this. Right. You know, um, imperative is so useful um, when you are instructing how to actually do the physical things that enable your game. Um, I saw a question hand yeah, raising. Right yeah. um, what are your thoughts on like the, what is an RPG chapter that's I think it needs to be more. Okay. I think I think in its current structure, where you take like two pages and right. talk about dice, yeah. and you're gonna be, that's that's nice. But that's to me that is so often the equivalent of well, just pat pat yeah. pat. Yeah. We're gonna go forward. I think it needs to be infused throughout. Mm -hmm. Like uh, one of the things I'm a big fan of now, and I've been I've been getting people to do is whenever you have example text, thread your examples. Yeah. So that from the start, like on page two, right? start this example chain where you use players and characters and actions and as you go through and add mechanics to that like all of a sudden like on page two or I'm gonna make numbers up on this page where we start talking about how your your players are criminals then we, we have we have an example where they talk about planning the heist and then we talk about the consequences of the heist and that example perpetuates it and then when it's an escape the heist and you want to have you know elements of oh we have car chase mechanics you have the example feed that car chase that was predicated on the heist that failed this is also a chance where you get to tie the visual element in because now you can put the art of that cool car chase right in the part where you're talking about the car chase and you're helping sell the package of the idea all by threading around your central core points yeah and if you want to get really really ambitious 
uh, the game Questlandia did this. You can even have a running example literally throughout your entire core rules. Um, not recommended for first-time layoutists as far as I've heard, but you know, if you really want to give a full example of play, it is technically possible to show, as you're introducing rules, have an example beside it in a uh, graphically defined element off to the side to show how the rule... He means a box. Okay. Yes, but, a, but, yes, right, a box, so but a continuous box throughout the entire, you know, chapter, for example. So wait, one? so no, no, no. So he was one. I'm giving out numbers now. Right on, right people, on. But, but before we do that, I have an opinion too. Go and for I'm it. not giving anybody a chance to speak until I've had an opinion. So um, uh, you asked, you know, what do, should these, should what is the value of these chapters and should they exist? I would love to see them not in the book. I think that they should oh, exist and i would what i so in my fantasy world here is you it's have you played an rpg before if not go to this website we have three videos from three different groups showing three different ways that you can play this game uh, so that you can see you have co what we call contrasting cases, right? So you're not you're not fixating on like this group did it this way, right? We have contrasting cases. So three different groups, different people, maybe like different um, scenarios that they're running through using the same, but doing role playing and doing what I call modeling. So actually saying, so first what we're going to do is show you what role playing a character looks like when you're doing it at the table. And then you go into actually doing it. Because a big problem that we have with rule books is we're trying to capture in text and fix, like a fly in amber, a living experience. We have access to new technologies that we can and should be integrated into our RPG teaching experience. So I cannot remember which game did this. I know it was from Magpie. They printed a game that had QR codes throughout mm -hmm. the text. And when you got to a section of rules, you could scan the QR code and uh, it would pop up a video of people actually playing through using so the rules uh... in the context of play, not making you imagine what's happening from a written example. Now, I think QR codes are a pretty good way to make sure your book is going to go obsolete sooner or later. Some the new hotness is going to come along, but I think that there has to be a way to have your written text be able to speak to living examples of play in some way. We can do it, and I think we should do it. Yeah, I think that the game was or less less hope. Right? It was less yeah. less hope. Thank yeah, you. So, Thank yeah. you. All right. So four. So you're number two. Oh, man, just lining up. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> wow. Numbers. Numbers. You can tell I teach large classes. <laughs> All over it. So to go back to something that you said early on about how sort of game design or, or role playing manuals are relatively new to Sure. Uh, but I think game manuals themselves, of like even tabletop games, still haven't figured out the formula for what good rules look like either. Yeah. And I wonder if that may have less to do with the game industry and more about what games are. Simply because, like, Backgammon is a 5,000 year old game. We've been making games for as long as, if not longer than we've sort of had human thinker and sort of money. We domesticated the cattle before we made Backgammon. So, we've been making games a really long time and we've never cracked how to actually teach people how to do them. And maybe that's simply a consequence of the fact that we've been making music a really long time, we've been making paintings a really long time, we've never figured out the manual for how to appreciate those because ultimately those aren't technical skills. Games are weird because they also involve technical skills, but maybe we're sort of finding better ways to do something that is 
possible. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it comes back to the idea of different rule books have to do different things for different games. Not only for different audiences, but a board game rule book versus a role-playing game rule book. The role-playing game rule book serves you well if it gives you heuristics and suggestions for how to solve problems at the table and situations and things like that. Um, if that stuff is in a board game rule book, like I don't, I don't, I've never seen really a board game rule book that has, you know, useful like heuristics for play. So these rule books are doing really, really different things. Like I don't even know what a rule book for a LARP you know, I, I haven't played enough LARPs to know, like, what are the good things that you always need to have in a LARP rulebook, for example, because they just all need such different things, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so um, yeah, I'm going to be real clear. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible at all. I really agree with what you're saying about there being different genres of rules. In fact, I was really inspired by something that you said earlier in this panel, <laughs> which is that these different traditions of rules writing are coming from different places. And, and you can imagine, like, so what, ha what can you imagine what game rule books would look like if, the, the, if role playing game designers had come in from the community of professional chefs, right? What, like, I think this would actually be an amazing, <laughs> amazing <laughs> exercise in rules writing if we looked at other kinds of communities and genres and said, what would a role playing game rule book look like if someone from that community? Yeah. So I think that there's a lot, and I might assign that to my students. So that's a really <laughs> interesting design space to explore. I also think that what we're talking about is rule books, and we're talking, we're not talking about community teaching. And actually, the reason why we have backgammon is because, and chess, and other games, other folk games, is actually because games are really, really, it's really good. It, games are are not, they're not easy to teach in writing. But to pass a game down through a community is really, really powerful. And actually, that's a place where I think role-playing games have an advantage, is what we do is we build communities. And I think that in the same way that I think our rulebook should be taking advantage of new technologies, we should be taking advantage of the, the fact that we do community better than most of the other game communities and most of the other hobby communities out there. Community is at the heart of what we do, and we should use it. We just haven't figured out how. Yeah, and it's... it's, so, it's oh. Sorry, I'll get to you. Uh, uh, I will add to this that there's an element kind of underpinning all this of what good is. Because uh. there's a subjective element. Because it, you, you had mentioned art. I don't mean to pick on you. I want to cite your example. But you had mentioned about, well, we don't know how to appreciate art. That's because I don't think you and I can fundamentally ever appreciate art the same way. Because we bring to it an experience and a filter that we need not to be afraid of, but we need instead to make use of. Which is why we need to create what we consider accessible text. Which right. is a text that is broad, instructional, and can key in on not entirely deep, but certainly, you know, it's not going chest or, or shoulder deep into an idea, but at least knees deep, so that everybody can, can access it to some degree. And because good is so subjective, I can still look at a book that I know I've looked at books that Josh has done, and I'm like, that's really awesome. This is great, it's clear, but I've hated the game itself. But I can look at it and go, Josh, Josh did great things. I've seen the manuscript, Josh did good things. And likewise, there are books on this, like books out there that people are like, oh, I love it. I know I do not. It's not my thing. And that doesn't make it not good. It just means that as a perspective and as a teaching device, I'm not going to reference it. And by creating uh, what's called a referential circle, which is the idea of I, I only have this one wheelhouse. It's circular because you're looking this way. I only have this one wheelhouse, so I only reference it. John's way into food metaphors, television, and pop culture. 
So John's going to go back to this as often as possible. John is less comfortable talking academically because it makes him feel like he's talking to his dad. So instead, he stays away from using large terms, even though John went to school way too long. So you, you play to your wheelhouse and you play to your strength. And that, it's good for you, but somebody who's coming into this going, right. I'd like a more structured experience, please, sir. Right. They're not going to find that with me. And that's not anybody's fault. It's just we're not going to meet in that way where we can unify everything and play the, take the field egalitarian, you know? Yeah, and talking about playing to strengths, you know, what is the, 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 what is the like, core strength of the rulebook in the face of technological progression? You know, as video becomes more widespread, you know, as more publishers do videos, as we get e-paper, as we, you know, et cetera, et cetera, like what are, do, do we know what the core strengths of the rulebook are that might hold out over time? Not just what's useful to it right now, but do we even know like what those uh, well, things about longevity the itself? Are that, right, uh, right. Yeah. Paper doesn't get obsolete. Mm -hmm. I can think of two, uh, regardless of medium. Mm -hmm. The the two, well, at least the two things I can think of off the top of my head. There's probably more. Two things I can think of that are universal for any game, regardless of system, regardless of age, regardless of whatever, is the fact that you are uh, requesting and choosing the reader to project an idea in their heads. I want you to talk about Steve the Barbarian. All right. And when I say when I say Steve, you might picture a certain Steve because that's your experience with those things named Steve. But when I say this is a game about this is sword and sandals, this is Conan, this is film noir. You have a we might not be speaking about the exact same elements, but you're in the ballpark. And regardless of medium, whether I, I tweet you that, text you that, stand next to you and yell at you, speak into a microphone, whatever you get when I put you in that ballpark, you're in the ballpark. And how I choose to manipulate, push, pull, and lead you, because it is a leadership thing, that's the second element, because I lead you through the ballpark where I want you to go, it's, it's, it's like going to the movies, right? Like, I'm going to go see Doctor Strange Monday, and I'm going to spend the extra money to go to that fancy theater where I reserve my seat, because I'm lazy and I like sitting on a reclining couch and having a milkshake brought to me. But the point of that is I get led to my seat. That's where I have selected... But that's where I'm going to have my ideal optimal viewing experience. By the way, if you go to an AMC theater, you're looking at G4 and F4. So they're not quite the center, but they're within the middle of the screen. You're looking at that thing because that's where I have chosen to go, but I need to be led there. Granted, it's the AMC policy to be led to your seat because you can't just fucking roll up to these things. But the fact remains, I can parallel this to the idea that when I make a game, I am leading you to where I want you to go. It's up to you to get there. It's horse and water drinking. So it's about, here's the theater. I tell you we're going to have this experience, here's the ballpark. You're already in the theater with me. Now I'm going to lead you to your seat. You don't know what your seat is. You might have reserved it by buying this book, but I'm going to take you to the specific spot I want. So you're saying that the rule book is, the core strength of the rule book is Usher. Yes. Usher. Yes. Usher. Mm -hmm. Usher. All right. So we're going to get question three. Who was three? Someone, I gave a number three. Clark. All right. Clark. All right. Um, talk, I talk do it. Yeah, totally. Do it, do it, do it. Bring us back down. Uh, you were talking about examples earlier. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, including an example where somebody somebody does, uh, plays it incorrectly, so it's a rule wrong, and you point out in the example why that, no, you might think you do it that way, but it's not right. Here's what you should do instead. I think that's amazing and it should be done more often. I think Can there are two. State the question, I what happens when you make what, what happens if in your example text you cite errors? Like GM number four blows this rule. I think errors need to be shown as because people make errors. One of the problems we have with example text on a practical level is that they're always perfect. Maybe, maybe you know, Tim doesn't roll a 20 the way Tim we all think Tim should, but 
he still attempts the thing and it still goes okay. It's not like Sarah the GM was like, I think the rule is interpreted this way and she's wrong. I think showing wrongness humanizes wrongness in a way where the player doesn't feel so threatened that they have to get it because it, it's that modeling thing. It's the idea that it has to come a certain way and if I don't get it, I'm a bad human. And it can also uh, uh, sort of insulate you. Like if you know there's a common mistake players are making, instead of making the text more like, you must do it right. Bold. Bold. Yeah. It's like, no, okay, you know, it's another way to get at that, like, this is a common misconception, but actually you do it this way. Yeah, sidebars the and boxes are such lush places for mm. lots of different kinds of explanations. That's Especially because we don't do layout. <laughs> yes. But that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that there is a danger if you are introducing a misconception that your player, the reader, will remember the misconception as the truth. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually quite a bit of research showing that that is the case. So, um, well, the editorial the, solution, I know. Oh, so let's hear the editorial solution, and then I'll. I'm I'll, so sorry. I didn't mean no, to no, no, go. You first, <laughs> and then I, and then we'll see if that's my solution. To to you can't prevent. There's no prevent. You can reduce. To, to reduce the, the, the case where the error is taken as gospel, because there's a, what's called the assumption of rightness in text, because you wrote the manual, so clearly the, the shit must be correct. Um, it, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, the, to reduce the, the case of, I've cited a wrong thing on purpose, and, but this is a mistake. Uh, aside from saying, this is a mistake people make, because that's kind of obvious. And, yeah. uh, you want to backload the paragraph. Make it clear that the error exists near the lower end of the paragraph because people generally, as a, as a structure, thanks to Western education, see the top part of the paragraph as your premise or your lead sentence or the idea you're going to develop over the next couple sentences. But if you, if you kind of stack it so that more of the point comes at the rear, it's what I'm left mm. with. And you can make it clear in the middle and the top of the paragraph. Here's a mistake I'm going to highlight. And then you explain yeah. what it and is. You mistake and then your subsequent follow-up paragraph is the correction. Do not put distance between error and correction, because otherwise you'll create a, a case where people are like, wait, two pages ago you said, and now you, you, you need that internal consistency, internal logic, so that people don't go, I'm out. So, I, sorry. I, I agree with that, but I have another. Yeah, so. go for it, go for it, go for it. Um, yeah, I cannot speak well enough about using not the text, but the structure of the text to constantly cue your reader. Yeah. You know, John was talking about how we use paragraphs for a reason. Don't just split things up into paragraphs that make sense, but make sure that you are ordering your information consistently in a way so that when someone's reading a section, they know that like conceptual stuff is at the top, then like maybe the basic action stuff, and then all of the like interactions and weird exceptions and things, like that is well separated, maybe in uh, completely different elements, like a, a bullet list, a few, a few exceptions, you know, things, things that are uh, issues, incorrect things, exception, you know, try, sometimes if you try to integrate those in with all of the like, okay, this is what the normal thing is, right. that might increase the chance yeah, of, of, of seeing the wrong things or the exceptions as the rules, right? So I want to add that this is talking about how you present the misconception, and I want to talk about the content. So um, correcting misconceptions, it turns out, is really hard. One of the ways that people are willing to actually correct their beliefs is if <coughs> the misconception leads them to a place of conflict. So if the, mis the misconception conflicts with something they already understand or believe, then they are at a place where they're open to correction and changing their belief. So um, 
I'm not sure how you would implement that research finding in writing a uh, misconception example, like in a sidebar, but you might think about saying like, they encountered the misconception in the example of play, and then they discover that there's a conflict between, we did this, but actually that would mean X, and we don't know what to do. These things don't agree, and then you have an opportunity to correct. So you really want to make sure that there's a conflict in the reader's mind, and probably you want to portray that with the characters in order to position your reader in order to actually be able to see the misconception as a misconception and not just absorb it into their how it should be. Yeah. One of the, one of the ways you can do that is by creating a, basically an appendix of you know here common mistakes people make. Lump yeah. them all together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's here's Board a package. Here are here are ten things I see people doing wrong based on playtest data, based on yeah. you know published results. Like you might fuck this shit up. Here yep. are ten ways. By the way, here's the reference. Not only will I restate the rule right here, but I will also provide the other page links in case you need yep. to reference the two. Yep. Because you might not want to flip back to page 136 to get the correct. And of course, right don't use that as a crutch to not actually make the Absolutely. rules themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. <laughs> Number four. Um, I, I, mine was just a short comment on. I like the idea of like pointing to the videos because one of the issues in my mind, anyways, of like how to role play in rule books is that the veterans resent paying for those mm. pages of yeah. talk mm -hmm. about, you know, I don't I don't want to read ten pages on how to role play. Right. Okay, great. I mean I might glance at them but I mean and actually to be honest, I probably though I might actually go and look at the the video, even though I know how to role play, just to see what they're demonstrating. Their, their take. Yeah. That's right. It is, yeah. <laughs> it was fine. Five six. Five, five, and then you've got six over there. Yeah, because be I've it. been giving people. Okay, five and six. You got. That's the end. We are no. Lo we are no longer accepting questions. Yeah. No one else will get a number. Uh, there was three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I have a, I, I particularly in board and card because it's, it's physical, like I'm gonna touch that shit. Um, that's critical because I've gotta be able to convey that information and I'm not always available in every time you're running it. So the more, uh, the more, the more different, wow, that's good grammar, John. The different <laughs> ways I can get you to engage in an understanding level about like, I need you to set the board up like this, I need you to move pieces like this. And when you explain it to somebody, reference this language. Without saying, tell them to set the board up. No, we can go clearer. We can get tighter. We can yeah. say, set the board up this way, and then have a paragraph preface or a or, yes, or this, call out. This is another example of using the rule book strength as an usher, right? Oh, you know, if if we commit ourselves to creating the spaces where we can actually use it as an usher, if we see that that is a core strength then do that thing. Do the learn how to play. It is hard because you have to double check that everything you're doing in that learn to play matches everything right. in your rule book. So maybe maybe wait until everything is done in your yeah, rule book. Yeah, write your learn to play last. Yes. That way you're yes. sure that the content you're learning to play doesn't need <laughs> to be Don't try to write them both at once. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I actually, I had a, a, a job once writing learn to play guides for a game company. And um, one of the things that 
that that I discovered in writing these guides is you know so I thought about all of these things it's like how do you mm -hmm. write the rules and how do you tell people how to teach one of the things that we were really surprised to find that we needed to include in these guides were the social expectations about how to be a good teacher so like we had to put in things like do not move other players pieces for them right which is not going to go in your main rule book and which good teachers will not do but actually, if you're writing a guide, it's probably going to be for the people who are not confident enough in their teaching ability to just take your main book and extract from it and show other people how to do it. So you really want to be thinking about the social norms. You should almost like get a group of people together and have them act out your ideal teaching scenario and watch them and watch what they do because you have hidden knowledge in your head about what you think a good teaching scenario for your game looks like and you're going to need to make it explicit in your training teachers and creating curriculum. Yeah, and because we have this oral culture uh, built in, putting stuff like that into the rulebook creates this knock-on effect, right? Like if you teach the teachers how to teach That's well, right. it just basically becomes this exponential thing. That's the more right. teacher, the more good teachers we have, uh, the more players are going to be interested, the more players are going to want to, t you know, it just right. creates this like virtuous cycle essentially. Number six has been waiting. And yes. number six. I, I are we talking like forward referencing, backwards referencing, uh, both? Like, lot. I want to hear a little bit of both. I found a drug habit and drinking really helped with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but more practically, uh, forward referencing can be dangerous. Yes. Because it breaks the flow moving forward. Because if I'm going to start talking about a thing, but th whatever it is, and pause and say, for more of this, skip ahead 10 chapters or 6 chapters or 2 pages or whatever, why... What you're basically suggesting on some level is that the material between those two points, where I was and where I'm going, is less important because mm. just skip it. You're also suggesting that I'm going to remember to come back because now I've caught up ahead. It's sort of like that weird choose your own adventure effect where it's, well, I was on page eight and now I'm on page 35. So I guess I act on page 35. You won't go backwards to page eight. Forward referencing can be a great pitfall for breaking up the idea. I mean, yes, we don't read these books linearly, but if you're developing ideas in sequence, even with threaded examples, you are asking people to to detour from that for the sake of you being more complete in the moment. Yeah, we are de-emphasizing the strength as an usher right. when you're doing that. You, you're, you're, you're saying, saying here's your seat, but uh, there's this other thing over here. That right. You, yeah. right. <laughs> Back referencing is, I believe, essential because it helps reinforce the material that you've already talked about. And it, it cements it as a critical thing. Like you've, you've talked about combat and referenced it five times. Your combat must be a thing you're hanging a hat on. Back referencing, I'm a four. Forward referencing, I'm a little leery, uh, particularly in the beginning and middle part of the book where I still have more to get through. But if I can forward reference towards an appendix at the end, yeah. like for, you know, for more content related to this, see the appendix two, which is you know, flip, 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 five pages from now, that's great. But if I'm moving through rules in a constant forward, backward, and I'm not leaving that, uh, I'm, I'm taking that agency away from the reader, like I'm mandating, flip ahead 10 pages now, then I'm less inclined to like appreciate the tone by which that's spoken, which means I'm less likely to open that book because that guy sounds like a knob. Yeah, I've, I've found that, you know, if you are working with forward references, one of the most important things, if you are going to use them, is that your reader understands what they're getting. When you're selling them this bill, they understand what they're getting when they yeah. go there. They understand why you might go there. Like, 
if if you're you know sending them to an appendix or a glossary, make sure that they know that this page reference is going to a glossary, which tells the reader, I probably don't need to know this right now. This is probably something that's right. like only going to be the extra word to say, see the glossary. I'm yes, exactly. Don't just say see page blah. They're going to be like, what is there? I right. don't understand. Yeah. Is there a way to say like we'll come back to this later? No. Which is what we're about to say because yeah. I think we are out of time. Yes. So we will be coming back to this conversation yes. <laughs> later. Thank you. And that you was can, an excellent. And you segue. can talk with, talk with us afterwards. Yeah. Absolutely. Should be continued. This is a topic I think yeah. close to all of our hearts. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Thank you for great questions. Thank you yeah, for an awesome wonderful. panel. This oh. was really fun. Thank you both. High five. High five. High five. All around. Right. No, yeah, low, nice. low five. Low five. Boom. All right. To be continued. You don't think there's a way to say we'll talk more about combat later in the book or that sort of thing.